verses 1 to 10. We've been away from this book for a month, so as we return, let me remind you that being a book of wisdom, as James is, it's not as necessary to establish the context of the verses we were about to read as it would be if we were taking up where we left off in almost any other book of the New Testament. While James himself may very well have known why he put these statements here in this letter and not earlier or later, it is impossible for us to know that. We simply have a new section of the letter before us introduced by another of James' questions. In 3.13 he asked, Who is wise and understanding among you? Now it is this, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? It's true that the previous verse, the last of our chapter 3, speaks of peace as the result, the blessing or benefit of true wisdom. So it makes some kind of sense to consider the causes of conflict, but the following verses very clearly take on a life of their own with little connection to the previous paragraph. So most commentators take chapter 4, verse 1, as the beginning of a new section. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. As Paul says of the natural man, the man without faith in God, without the new birth, the unsaved man, he is a slave to various lusts and pleasures. Peter says that such lusts, the passions of the flesh, war against the soul. But here the idea is more that these unholy and selfish desires in us war through us against others. The word translated passion in verse 1 is literally desires. It's the word from which we get the word hedonism. And in such a context as this, the word refers to sinful, self-indulgent desires. The bottom line is that whatever may have been the issues about which these Christians were quarreling, James doesn't think they were really the problem. That's why he doesn't even identify them. The problem was their desire for pleasures or advantages for themselves without regard to or in indifference to the welfare of others. The mention of murder has always posed a problem. Is James suggesting that these Christians were actually killing one another? That was regarded as so unlikely that a number of translators and commentators through the centuries, Calvin included, have supposed that a textual corruption somehow um, entered the text here and that the word James wrote was actually envy, not murder, as the two words in Greek are spelled quite similarly. However, on the one hand, there is no manuscript evidence whatsoever to suggest that the reading originally was envy. And on the other, if Christians were really committing murder, 
it certainly seems unlikely that James would have left that fact with just this comment. Clearly, verse 2 is concerned with the same uh, issue introduced in verse 1. And there, a word like fight is clearly used metaphorically. These Christians were not actually exchanging blows, but they were at odds with one another and quarreling with one another. And since, as we've already noticed, no writer of the New Testament so artlessly and naturally depends upon and reproduces the teaching of Jesus himself, especially as that teaching was delivered in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, it's surely likely that, the Lord, that James is drawing on the Lord's statement in that sermon that evil and hateful thoughts towards someone else are a sin of the same class as murder. They are likewise a violation of the sixth commandment. Hatred and murder lie on the same continuum of sinful human behavior. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, so long as sinful passions, selfish passions, desires, govern our lives, we'll not find the satisfaction we are looking for. For that we must turn to God. And God will reward those who want for themselves what he wants for them. He's not going to hear the prayers of those who seek only their own pleasure. Once again, James is incorporating the Lord's teaching in making his own case. For example, consider the statement also in the Sermon on the Mount that the Father will not hear the prayers of those who do not forgive the sins of others. Quarrelers almost never forgive the sins of others. As the psalmist put it a long time before, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And quarreling and divisiveness is iniquity. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. One commentator has written of the opening of verse 4, the abrupt and harsh adulterous people marks the beginning of one of the most strongly worded calls to repentance that we can find anywhere in the New Testament. After repeatedly, uh, repeatedly referring to his and addressing his audience as brothers, this change of tone catches our attention. The term adulterous in the feminine form harks back, you know, to the Old Testament prophets who frequently chastise Israel as Yahweh's unfaithful spouse. The Lord Jesus, remember himself, referred to his contemporaries in similar language in Matthew 12:19. This adultery takes the form of dividing our affections between God and the world. Remember the Lord's remark, you cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, no, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? That verse is one of the most famously difficult verses in all of the New Testament to interpret. 
without confusing you with the details, let me simply say that the four with which the verse begins obviously indicates that what is said in verse 5 is intended to confirm what was said in verse 4. In other words, God is a jealous God who will brook no rivals. Certainly not a rival spirit such as the spirit of the world. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now comes the solution. Where sin has abounded, grace will much more abound for those who are humble enough to seek that grace from God in a spirit of true repentance. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Think of submission as the active part of both true humility and true repentance. And Christian submission is everywhere and always both to God and to others. One cannot be truly humble before God and proud before everybody else. Now James here detects behind a Christian's disloyalty to God the work of the evil one whose aim is to weaken the kingdom of God by weakening the loyalty of Christians to that kingdom. After all, you remember this was the nature of his temptation as he posed it to Jesus. He could have the world. He could have the pleasures of the world if only he would bow down to Satan and acknowledge his rule of the world. Now, to resist the devil is not some technology of the spiritual life as the TV preachers regularly have it, but as it was with Jesus himself, it is simply to practice humility and obedience to the word of God in the face of the devil's temptations. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, the verses that remain in this section from 7 actually from six on, elaborate the spirit and the action of true humility and true repentance. What we have in all these verses is a series of commands, one of the, some of the many imperatives in the book of James. And each one tells us something more about what it means to be humble and how to live a humble life before God and others. It is, as it were, interpreting the citation from Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. If you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. If you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And you do that in one way, by seeking purity of heart and life. The idea of cleansing one's hands draws on the ritual practice of the priests in the ancient epoch who readied themselves for their work in the sanctuary, drawing near to God as they did by washing their hands. As you know, by the first century, ritual hand washing has been, had been extended to every Jew. So the practice was commonplace and served well as an image of moral purification. Drawing near to God requires getting serious about your sins, about 
It, it depends upon repenting of your sins, putting them to death, including these sins, quarreling and a fighting among ourselves. No more of this half-hearted allegiance to the Lord. Singleness of purpose is what is necessary. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The problem is we haven't been taking our sins seriously. We haven't been facing the evil of them. We take our disobedience too lightly. We grow comfortable with it. People who are cheerful in their lives when their lives are an offense to God are fools. Remember the Lord's remark. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. The wise mourn now in order to laugh later and forever. If we grow comfortable with our sins, those sins become a feature of our lives that we will make no real effort to remove. There's a reason why the Lord began his Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. There's a reason why Paul described the Christian character as sorrowful, but always rejoicing. As long as we remain sinners, as long as we continue to grieve the Holy Spirit, as long as our behavior has a doleful effect on others, real Christians will be, must be, deeply disappointed and sad about themselves and their own lives. Sad that we're not more of a credit to the Lord and a help to others. One who won't be genuinely sorrowful for his sins will never make progress in the Christian life. And that progress by which we honor the Lord is for a Christian his greatest means of increasing his joy and his satisfaction. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The final imperative in the list serves as a kind of inclusio with the citation of, of Proverbs 3.34 in verse 6. The world imagines, of course, that real lowliness of heart is a sign of weakness, that mourning for sin is morbid. The Christian discovers the true humility that must involve that mourning for sin is the pathway to both joy and power because it's something the Lord always rewards. It was the tax collector in the Lord's parable in the Gospel of Luke, the man who beat his breast over his own sinfulness, who went home justified. So far the word of God. It's a depressing commentary on the state of the Christian church in the world that James could have written a circular letter to many congregations scattered over great distances, as we learn in chapter 1, verse 1, and assume that the hard words he wrote about dissension, hostility, and pride leading to constant quarreling will have hit the mark. This is not, has never been a problem the church faces only rarely. Indeed, fighting and war seem altogether appropriate descriptions of what happens all too often in the life of the church and between churches. 
James's language strikes us as somewhat over the top. Surely not war, surely not murder. But perhaps that's only because we are so used to this state of affairs, we're past seeing the real ugliness, the real nature of our behavior. We don't see how our petty little disputes and how our thinly disguised ill will toward others in the church betray a pride that leaves little room for God in our hearts. Our own desires have crowded him out. The other day, Florence and I went to see the new movie, Race, the story of Jesse Owens' triumph at the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. The same Olympics, by the way, in which Louis Zamperini competed. Zamperini was at one point Jesse Owens' roommate, and the same Olympics in which the University of Washington crew won Olympic gold. This movie, of course, portrays the races that Jesse Owens won at those Berlin Games. It is nothing short of remarkable how venues long since destroyed and events that happened long years ago can now be recreated so convincingly on film. But it is also a portrayal of the vicious racism of both American and German society just two generations ago. In the lifetime of my parents, in the adulthood of my parents. Racism that was surely as great an obstacle for Owens to overcome as the other runners on the track. Remembering that history is, as it ought to be, depressing and humiliating for Americans. There ought to be more depression and there ought to be more humiliation and there ought to be less use of that history for political gain in our public discourse. So is the exclusion of the only two Jewish members of the American Olympic team in 1936 from the 400-meter relay for which they had qualified fair and square, both of whom were world-class sprinters and absolutely deserved their chance to compete. They were, in fact, the only members of that Olympic team, apart from one man who had had to have emergency surgery for appendicitis, who were not allowed to compete in the event for which they had qualified. And, of course, a lot of lies were told after the fact to cover up the reason for their exclusion. But it's a fact of history that they were denied a chance to run because Adolf Hitler did not want Jews celebrating a victory before his people at his own Olympics. Avery Brundage, the president of the American Olympic Committee, who would for decades be the president of the International Olympic Committee, was himself a despicable anti-Semite and had given orders to exclude the Jewish runners. We did that. Americans. The land of the free. The home of the brave. Our people. How could our people have been so small, so cruel, so dishonest about their real motivations and not realized to their shame what it was they were doing and why they were doing it? 
But then it really isn't so hard to believe that, is it? Look around you. Consider the world as it actually is. You see conflict, hatred, cruelty, selfish pride absolutely everywhere you look. It's characteristic of the behavior of people. It's characteristic of the behavior of nations. We know that. The issues are almost never what people say they are. Nothing so high-minded or important as all of that. It is almost always what James says it is here. Selfish desires, grasping for more for themselves. Anyone who denies the biblical doctrine of original sin has a lot of explaining to do. From the behavior of children at play to the behavior of the world's greatest nations, it is so much of the time selfishness, backbiting, hatred, envy, indifference to others. We try to cover it up with high-sounding rhetoric as children do when they cry, that's not fair. But no one willing to face facts should have any difficulty seeing the pride, the envy, the selfishness that motivates people in their relationships with others and with other peoples. Peace may be the hope of the world. It may be acknowledged by everyone to be a great good but it is precisely this peace of which the world has always been in terribly short supply. All right. But the saddest fact about all of that is that a great many of the people who behaved that way and behave that way still would have claimed to be and in many cases would have been or are Christians. It is a Christian's habit to look down on other people, to consider them inferior to ourselves, to fight with them and quarrel with them. Christians, we expect sinners to ask, act like sinners. We expect them to be selfish. We expect them never to surmount their problems. But Christians are supposed to be better than that. Alas, we know how often it is not so. One of the most humiliating aspects of church history is that there is so much of this utterly inexcusable infighting between Christians. So much passion at war within us. So much selfish desire. So much pride. So little real humility. My goodness, how appalling that the 17th century Jewish pantheist philosopher Benedict Spinoza could observe I have often wondered that persons who make a boast of professing the Christian religion namely love, joy, peace, temperance and charity to all men should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this rather than the virtues which they profess is the readiest criterion of their faith. It's one, I say, of the demoralizing things about reading church history. How much of this quarreling there has always been among people who should have known better and done better. To be sure, there are some disputes that are necessary because the truth of God's word is at stake or some principle of righteousness 
Paul acknowledges the fact that divisions are sometimes necessary to show who really belongs to the people of God. Church discipline, which whatever else it is, is almost always a dispute and usually a quarrel, is actually required in the Word of God in order to maintain the church's public commitment to a godly life. But so much more of the time, the quarrels and fights are just what James says they are. The eruption of selfish passions. Strip away the outer trappings, the self-justifying claims, and one controversy after another is the result of somebody or some people wanting something more than what they have, or of someone envious of what someone else has, or of the spirit of revenge, or the spirit of fear. Speaking of the 1936 Olympics and the Nazi era, if you can believe this, the evangelical Bible-believing Reformed Church in the Netherlands was split apart in 1944 during the Nazi occupation of Holland over the issue of the best way to state the ground or the reason for infant baptism. They were all advocates of the practice of infant baptism. They shared the same loyalty to the confessions of the Reformed faith. But they were fighting over whether the infant should be baptized on the strength of the presumption that he was regenerate already or would soon be, or should be baptized on the strength of the promise of God's covenant. Can you believe that? The principal spokesman for the promise of the covenant side, a man who was actually deposed from the Reformed ministry at this synod, could not be there to defend himself because he was hiding from the Nazis. Had he appeared, he would have been arrested and sent to prison, or worse, as he had already previously been when he criticized the Nazi government. So bizarre was this quarrel between Christian ministers that very soon thereafter, nobody in the church wanted to talk about it. So impossible to defend was this infighting and in effect this killing that after the war, a public apology had to be offered and many shamed-faced men had to acknowledge how badly they had behaved. It wasn't theology that provoked that dispute. It was pride. How dare men disagree with me? And these were ministers and elders, supposedly the creme de la creme of the Dutch Reformed Church. Choose your favorite hero of church history, and I'll show you a man whose life was dogged by controversy and quarrel, and in almost every case, someone who contributed to making those quarrels worse than they needed to be. Augustine had his enemies in the church, he spent years trying to resolve some stubborn rifts in the North African church, though some of the things he said in managing those controversies curl our hair today. John Calvin and John Knox were controversialists all their professional lives, and it's admitted by everyone, friend and foe alike, that even if many of the quarrels in which they were involved were not of their own making, they managed to make them worse 
by putting the worst, not the best, construction on what others had said and others had done. Samuel Rutherford, for all his love of Jesus, had a reputation as a hothead. Jonathan Edwards was engaged in a long series of quarrels, and even if we say, as I think we should, that he was on the right side of most of them, he didn't always do what might have been done to increase the light and lessen the heat. And on and on. John Wesley had a penchant for making enemies of his friends, friends with whom he was in almost complete agreement about everything. When a quarrel broke out, Wesley's conduct was often simply atrocious. Outright dishonesty and deceit was not above him or beyond him when he wanted to put his enemy in a bad light. J.I. Packer, as eminently likable and worthy a Christian man as you are ever to find, is thought poorly of in some English Christian circles because of the quarrels of some years ago. Coming into our own time and our own circle, I was reminded by these verses from James 4 of an article by Professor John Frame, now of Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, entitled Machen's Warrior Children, an account of one controversy after another that has inflamed tempers and separated brothers in our conservative Presbyterian world in the years since the death of the last great unifying figure, J. Gresham Machen, on the 1st of January, 1937. Machen, you may remember, was the unquestioned leader of the conservatives of the Presbyterian Church in the 1920s and in the 1930s. But he died, died young. And in that article, Frame identifies 21 separate quarrels that have, over the years, occupied pastors and elders and congregations, and not just occupied them, but separated them, made them angry toward one another, suspicious, unforgiving. Remember, these were all men who ascribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, who hold to the inerrancy of the Bible, and are Presbyterians in their church affiliations. They argued over eschatology, over the millennium in particular, very heatedly, though nobody, or almost no one nowadays, thinks it's wise to argue over that subject. Most people of the wiser sort admit that men in those early days grossly exaggerated the significance of choosing one of those three views or another and tended to infer implications of the other two millennial positions that the advocates of those positions expressly repudiated. They argued fiercely over what was called Christian liberty, which referred, in fact, not to such liberty as is described in the Bible, but the liberty to smoke cigars and drink alcoholic beverages. It divided whole churches in the 1930s and the 40s and the 50s. But as anyone knows who spends any time among the members of our Presbyterian churches nowadays, that controversy has long since been put to bed. 
They argued over, if you can believe this, the meaning of the incomprehensibility of God. They wanted to comprehend the incomprehensibility. In an esoteric dispute between the philosophers, of Gordon, uh, the philosophers Gordon Clark and Cornelius Van Til and their respective camps, that is even still today very difficult to explain to any reasonably intelligent person. That too led to division and alienation between brothers. They argued about, some still argue today, about apologetics, about the proper way to defend the Christian faith. Like most disputes about evangelism and apologetics, those doing most of the arguing were people who didn't do much in the way of apologetics, but they liked to argue about the way other people did apologetics. In a way typical of Christian arguments, the tone has been shrill, while the actual increase in understanding has usually been nil. And on and on it goes. We've argued about the charismatic gifts, about the authority of the Old Testament law, about how to do counseling, about the relationship between the covenant of grace and the law of God, about the length of the days of creation, about the role of women in the church, about the relationship between the covenant and justification, and so on. We're only halfway through Frame's list of 21. In almost all of these quarrels, there was more heat than light. There was a great deal of unfair criticism of others. There was a readiness to believe the worst rather than a determination to believe the best. Far too much anger and far too little humility. So, no genuinely satisfactory resolution at the end of the day. Not even an agreement among brothers to disagree peaceably. The proof that these arguments were by and large the sort the Bible condemns is that we always moved on to something else. And the original dispute was largely forgotten. We wanted to argue. And when we tired of one subject, we moved on to another course, within a single congregation. The same sort of quarrels can occur over the color of the carpet, the assignment of responsibilities in the church, the election of officers, the gift, the gifts of the pastor, or the lack of the same, the allotment of money, and on and on. And we still haven't mentioned the personal rifts that separate individual believers from one another, such as the tiff, whatever it was about, between Euodia and Syntyche, those two women in the church in Philippi. We've had that kind of argument and disagreement here too through the years. So the one thing you and I are not free to do is to imagine that this is somebody else's problem that James is addressing, not ours. That to whomever James was speaking, he's not speaking to us. James is wisdom literature. So it is for everybody all of the time. As you remember, Proverbs has a great deal to say about quarreling and controversy. And as always, it addresses what it says to our ordinary daily lives. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. 1628. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. I like the NIV better. The starting of a quarrel is like breaching a dam, 
So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. That's 1714. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. That's 1719. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. If you want to get two people who refuse any longer to speak to one another, just get him quarreling about something. That is 1819. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. That's 20, verse 3. Drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. That's 22.10. For lack of wood, the fire goes out and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. That's 26.20. So, we are to take James to heart. The fact that there has been, is today, so much quarreling in the church should put us on our guard It should embarrass us, humiliate us, and grieve us. We have reason to mourn and weep, as we are told to do in verse 8. And there are certainly ways to practice humility, to purify our hearts, and to resist the devil. The best way I have found through the years, the way recommended to us in Proverbs particularly, is simply to keep our mouths shut as our Savior himself did on a number of occasions. Alexander White once put the challenge this way. If we cannot do it, he's speaking of managing a dispute, if we cannot do it with clean and all men loving hearts, let us leave all debate and contention to stronger and better men than we are. That sounds right to me. I hope it does to you as well. But if so, it means that I should usually keep my mouth shut and leave the argument to others. It's not as if my opinion is so important or as if wisdom is going to die with me. I'm almost almost always glad that I remained silent when I managed to do so. And let us take our theology seriously, whether we are tempted or whenever we are tempted to quarrel with people we know or with nameless folk far away involved in some usually unnecessary dispute. Here's John Newton. There is a principle of self which disposes us to despise those who differ from us. Calvinists of all men are bound by our own principles to the exercise of gentleness and moderation. He means we're the ones who make the most of the fact that we were helpless sinners, utterly dependent upon God's sheer undeserved mercy toward us. We, of all people, cannot look down on others, cannot despise others, cannot think ourselves better or wiser than others. He means we are the ones who've always been the most willing to admit that even as justified sinners, we remain to a terrible degree sinners nonetheless, and that we must therefore always be on high alert to the fact that our motivations are tainted by sin and self, and our actions are almost invariably less pure than we imagine them to be. Further, we're the ones who make most of the majesty of God, before whom... We ought to be humble. And any Christian who for a moment imagines himself or herself better than another Christian 
or thinks that some other person has not done due deference to us or acts as if he or she even imagines such a thing to be true has betrayed both the majesty and the grace of God. That is not humility. There can be no quarrel in the church unless there are at least two Christians willing to make one. However willing another Christian may be to quarrel, if the rest of us are simply unwilling, there can be no quarrel. And without quarrels, James tells us, our prayers are more likely to be heard. A very great thing. God is more likely to give us his grace and we are more likely to be exalted by the Lord. Pretty good deal if you ask me. Amen.